welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows and more information by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. I would love to hear from you. Okay, so we are continuing our celebration of International Respect for Chickens Month, honoring, respecting, and bringing attention to chickens. And our guest has dedicated her life to bettering the lives of chickens, Tara Hess. But before we bring in Tara, I did want to say a bit more about chickens. I know that we're talking a lot about chickens this month on the podcast in the last episode and this one, but chickens are arguably the most exploited and abused sentient being on the planet in the greatest numbers certainly. So they deserve a couple of podcasts worth of focus, I believe. And I love how Karen Davis of United Poultry Concerns calls them cheerful birds. So many people don't know chickens. They haven't spent time with chickens, yet they take their body parts and their secretions into their own human bodies every day. But they don't know them. They don't know chickens. I haven't had the privilege to spend much time with chickens either. I did rescue a rooster that we called Kakuta, and I have an episode where I tell that rescue story. Uh, But other than Kakuta for a couple of months, I haven't really had the privilege of spending much time with chickens. But I do talk to others that have. I talk frequently with people that have spent most of their lives with chickens, most of their adult lives with chickens. And when they're describing chickens, I hear words like delightful and busy and cheerful. This, of course, is when they're treated with respect and are thriving in a good place like a sanctuary or someone's home. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not the case for the billions of chickens bred and killed for their flesh and eggs. But when I hear the descriptions of these chickens that are, are thriving, that are in a good place, that's the true nature of chickens. And when I hear those words like busy and delightful, I I think of all birds. Cogent and I live in an area now where we see so many birds. There's just an array of bird species that we encounter on our walks around this area. We're near the Delta in the Sacramento Valley, and they have such a beautiful cheerful, delightful uh, aura. You know, they're just delightful to watch, cheerful to hear. Their songs are amazing. So I think that those same descriptions that people who know chickens, they're describing all birds, really. And we just witnessed an amazing springtime phenomenon that happens every spring on our walks. We try to walk every evening, but once a week we take a longer walk, about three hours out on a trail, and under this freeway overpass, these sweet little red-chested swallows. Now, I don't know if they're actually swallows. I say swallows because they're really tiny. And they have uh, a just kind of a rusty orange red chest, colored chest. They build these mud houses around the base of the concrete pillars under this freeway, really high up, like 50 feet up or something. And they make these mud nests, these round houses to lay their eggs in. This is what eggs are for folks (laughs) to make baby birds and it's it's really just this engineering feat somehow they make these round mud huts with just a tiny hole to go in and out of and it somehow sticks to this smooth concrete and just hangs there it's it's truly amazing and they fly fast in and out and around and darting here and there and sticking their little heads out and looking and very busy very purposeful housing and feeding their families And so many people, I believe, would have 
a fascination with this, would want to watch this <laughs> all day and uh, to protect these birds and their habitat. Bird watchers, bird lovers, they recognize the incredible creatures that birds are and, well, often <laughs> while eating other birds, chickens, and somehow, somehow separating one kind of bird from another, from all others, one kind of bird, chickens and turkeys as well, separating them from all other birds. They're no longer wild, so therefore no longer worthy of our concern. But if you're able to observe them as people that uh, live with chickens, work on sanctuaries, are able to, like we've been observing these wild birds building their nests, you see the life, the consciousness, the uh, busyness, the concern for their family's well-being. And people that are lucky enough to spend time with chickens, they observe these same things. They have a true love of life. They're busy all day. The satisfaction of spreading their wings in the sun and uh, feeling how good that feels. The meaningful interactions with other fellow beings. They love life. We have no right to take that from them, to confine them, to dictate every aspect of their life, to separate families, deny all family life. Chickens in the egg and meat industry never are able to care for their own chicks, as these swallows are. They aren't able to have the purpose in life of caring for a family, seeing them grow strong, leave the nest. No chickens are even born in nests. Uh, that, I mean, that's their natural birthright. They're born in sterile metal drawers in the hatcheries. It's, uh, it's awful. It's a crime against nature. It's a crime against these emotional living beings that are not really seen as birds anymore. They're seen as something else, a commodity, a product, a, a unit of monetary gain. All their sentience, their agency, their, their purpose is ignored, repressed, slaughtered, cut up, sold. It's tragic. And I want people to see chickens for for who they are, the incredible birds that they are, and, and their worth, their worth as individuals. So we are doing that now, here and now, celebrating International Respect for Chickens Month. Uh, and a great way to celebrate is to join us for our Humane Hoax Chicken webinar coming up on May 21st. This is the third year we're doing this webinar. Uh, Compassionate Living and Triangle Chicken Advocates are the creators and hosts of this webinar. And we have a great lineup of presenters, fantastic topics including our guest on the podcast today, Tara Hess, who will be speaking about deciphering good from bad information about chickens and chicken care. She will be talking a bit about that in the upcoming interview, but we'll be going more in depth on that at the webinar. I mentioned last episode that we will also have Karen Davis of United Poultry Concerns joining us. And my co-organizer, Alistair Van Cleek of Triangle Chicken Advocates, talking about roosters. But we will also be having uh, Rebecca Moore from the Institute for Animal Happiness speaking about the avian flu epidemic. Uh, really important stuff to know about. Rebecca was on the podcast last year for the Micro Sanctuary series. So it's, it's going to be a great day focused on this amazing, busy, delicious, delightful, cheerful bird, the chicken. I'll put a link to the registration in the show notes. Please join us on May 21st for the Humane Hoax Chicken Webinar. All right, let's now bring in our guest for today's show.
All right, let's bring in our guest now. Today we have Tara Hess, and she became involved in chicken care and rescue while interning at Farm Sanctuary. She spent the next decade working as a caregiver, ultimately moving into shelter management roles and becoming a frequent presenter at Farm Sanctuary's Farm Animal Care Conference, where she often led sessions focused on chicken care. She is now the senior advisor at the Open Sanctuary Project, where she uses her hands-on experience to create uh, animal care resources that are accessible and reflect many nuances of chicken and sanctuary work. Welcome to the podcast, Tara. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you, and I am looking forward to hearing all about your work And we like to start, though, with kind of getting to know you, and I ask all our guests why and when you went vegan. When did you go vegan? What brought you on the vegan path? Uh, Give us that history. So I went vegan back in 2008, and it was after a visit to Farm Sanctuary, which was the first farmed animal sanctuary I ever visited. Um, And that was the one in in New York? Yes. Yep. It was the one in Watkins Glen. I'm from Rochester, so it's not too, too far away. And leading up to this visit, like, I mean, probably the eight or so years before I had been like intermittently vegetarian. So I would go a few years being vegetarian and then it wouldn't really stick for whatever reason. So it's like, I had this like idea that I didn't necessarily want to eat animals, but sometimes I didn't really live by that. And um, so I was back to being vegetarian at this point and I'd probably been vegetarian for maybe almost a year, but the, the whole concept of like veganism was not really on my radar in terms of the suffering involved in the egg and dairy industry and what hens raised for raised and bred for egg production and female cows who are bred and raised for um, milk production, like what they went through. And then I really was clueless about the you know, what happened to roosters and, you know, what happened to male, you know, Holstein calves or Jersey calves who, you know, obviously weren't going to be raised to produce milk because they're male. So there were, there was like this whole world that I was mostly unaware of during that time. It was more just this, like, it felt like it was wrong, like to eat animals. But again, in this sort of like theoretical, like removed way. Like I hadn't met these individuals. I wasn't super, super familiar of like what was going on, like within these industries. It was more just the idea, like clearly someone is dying and like, that's not right. But I didn't realize all the suffering that leads up to that, the killing of that animal, if that makes sense. So with that in mind, my partner, Luke and I um, went to visit Farm sanctuary. He wasn't even vegetarian at the time. Um, he brought me as a birthday present because I'm like one of those people that's like, oh, like I'm an animal lover, even if there's this massive disconnect in like how <laughs> I actually behave. Yeah. Um, and so, so we went to to farm sanctuary and went on. You know, it's like an hour tour, and that visit just really affected me. And I realized this isn't a unique story. Um, I think a lot of people who visit sanctuaries have have this experience, but in general, my memory is not good. (laughs) But there are certain parts of that visit that just still really stick out. And those are the first is meeting two male turkeys. So large, broad breasted white turkeys. I had never, I'm sure I'd never been around a turkey. I don't, I don't think maybe I had seen like wild turkeys in the distance or something, but I had definitely never been around a domesticated turkey. I had no idea how big they were, how full of personality they were, you know, just, it was a really incredible opportunity to meet them. And I think when, when I wasn't vegetarian, like when I was doing the sort of like, I can't really commit, I was one of those people who like, you know, I only eat poultry, which it makes me totally cringe now because Mm. that's like nothing to be 
proud of, but like meeting these turkeys, it's like, this is who I'm saying it's okay Mm. to be killed and to eat. You know, every time I can't make it work, like this is who, you know, who's suffering I'm contributing to. Yeah. And so that was really powerful. And then uh, I also remember meeting the cows and when I was vegetarian, I was like a heavy, you know, like replace the, the animals with just animal products with, you know, with like dairy. And so, so meeting them was also really powerful. I met a cow who had been a female cow who had been rescued from the dairy industry. So she had been exploited for her milk. She had had her babies taken away from her. I'm hearing these stories. And to hear that information and to see this cow, it was really powerful. And I met uh, a male Holstein cow. Um, and again, Holsteins are a breed that are typically exploited for their milk. And so he was rescued from you know, certain death as a cow who was not going to produce milk and not have the same value in that, in that industry. So meeting them was just it was, it was putting a face to the decisions that I was making. And it really made me realize how my actions and my ethics were out of sync and that I didn't want that. And so after that visit, um, we went to a restaurant in town and Watkins Glen is tiny. And this is, you know, 14 years ago. Like, so there were fewer vegan options in general 14 years ago. And then you were in this like tiny town, but because Farm Sanctuary is here, it had way more vegan options than I think your average tiny rural setting would have. And so we're sitting at this restaurant where it's like so clear that like you can do this, right? Like you can order like vegan things. And I just, I looked at Luke and I was like, I, I think I have to be vegan now. Like, I don't know how I, I can't unsee what I just saw. I can't, and it wasn't, you know, some graphic image that I saw, you know, it was like, I can't unsee them. Like Mm -hmm. I can't erase them from the equation anymore because I see them. So yeah. So I went vegan on the spot. That trip really changed the trajectory of my life and of Luke's life because it, not only did it make me want to change the way I made my daily choices in terms of what I ate or products that I bought and things like that, but it really made me want to, to like dedicate my life to, to helping these individuals. And so I, I applied for all sorts of jobs at, at farmed animal sanctuaries with no experience. So of course I didn't get any of the jobs, which is totally valid but I just felt so drawn to, like, I had no clue that there were people who did this work. Like, I didn't know this work existed, basically. And I, but I knew I wanted to do it once I knew it existed. I ended up quitting my teaching job. You know, in New York, the school year starts in September. By October, I had quit. <laughs> and I, um, I applied for an internship at Farm Sanctuary because I figured, you know, if I can't get a job because I have no experience, I want to at least start working on getting some experience. And I was privileged enough to be able to quit, quit my job and spend three months, you know, in a rural setting doing unpaid work that then turned into being hired and turned into Luke going vegan and turned into Luke doing an internship and working at Farm Sanctuary. And we gave up our apartment in the city and we didn't just relocate to the country. We relocated to an apartment in the sheep barn (laughs) at Farm Sanctuary (laughs) and you had to walk through a pen of sheep and goats to get to the bathroom. So we were like (laughs) all in, you know what I mean? Like we just like, we were in it a hundred percent. So that is, yeah, that's both how I went vegan and how I ended up at Farm Sanctuary. (laughs) Wow. I love it. That's such testimony of the power of sanctuaries. And yeah. yeah, and just how it changed your life in every mm-hmm. way. That's amazing. Right. It really did. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. So, so you interned and then you got a job with Farm Sanctuary and you were with them for about a decade. Uh, mm-hmm. And now you have moved on to the Open Sanctuary Project. And this is a really unique. Uh, project. And I'd love you to tell us about it. Tell us about the Open Sanctuary Project and what you do there. 
So the Open Sanctuary Project is an online resource for animal sanctuaries, rescues, individual caregivers. And our goal is to basically provide folks with the tools they need to provide compassionate, lifelong, individualized care to animals. Um, our focus is on farmed animals specifically, but some of our resources can be applied a bit more generally. So we've had dog and cat rescues or some like wildlife places utilize some of our, our resources, but our focus is definitely on farmed animals. You know, we're always growing and adding more resources. Um, right now we have about, it's over 500 resources. They're all free and they cover a range of topics. So we have how-to guides about the care of certain species. We have detailed resources about some of the more common diseases that these species might be affected by or that caregivers need to be aware of. And then beyond direct care, um, we also have resources that are geared towards sanctuary educators because education is often a critical component of a sanctuary's mission. But of course, time and resources are limited. And so it can be hard for folks to have time to create their own programs. My colleague Andy creates these really amazing lesson plans that folks can download and then, you know, they can either use as is or tweak them to fit the specific work that the sanctuary is doing. We also cover topics related to nonprofits generally and in governance and organization. So in information about boards and how to work with independent contractors and things like that. We really want to just give people a good foundation of like, here's, here's some of the information that you need to get started and, and have it all in one, one place for folks. And then in terms of what I do, because of my background, I focus on those direct care resources. So a big part of my job is creating new resources, updating resources as needed. And then also I've been working on these basic care courses. Um, so instead of folks going to our website and looking at one resource here and then trying to figure out what resource they want to look at next, because again, we have over 500, so there's lots of things to look at. It's, you know, a course put all together where it's like, here are the basics of what you should know if you're going to take on the care of of a certain species. Um, so that's, that's my main role. Yeah. And I think people don't realize sometimes how detailed and um, complicated it can be to care for these animals. What do you think is the most challenging thing? If somebody was wanting to start caring for farmed animals or, or even considering starting a sanctuary, what are the challenges um, that they should be aware of? There are quite a few challenges. Um, one is, like you said, I think people don't realize the level of care that, that these individuals need. There, there are some species that especially, I feel like there's this notion that's like, oh, they're easy. Chickens are one. It's like, oh, it's so easy to care for chickens. And you can come across a lot of things that say it's so easy to care for chickens and they're, they barely cost any money at all to care for. It's like, yes, those are all true if you don't actually care about your chickens <laughs> and you're not actually trying to provide good care for them, then sure, right. they don't, you know, they're easy and they don't cost a lot of money. But that's not the, not the reality. It's the, you know, the opposite. Like chickens are expensive. Vet care for chickens is expensive, <laughs> you know, proper mm -hmm. vet care. So I think people don't, don't realize that. And then I think there's also the fact that um, I think a real challenge, and this is something, there are lots of reasons why I would never want to start my own, like more traditional organized sanctuary. And, and one is I don't like, I'm one of those people that I would have a very hard time saying no. And I think that's something that is a challenge people aren't necessarily expecting. Cause I, I don't think everyone understands the scope of the problem yeah. when they get into this work, like the number of calls you will get asking you to take someone and the number of heartbreaking stories you will hear. And the fact that you will eventually find yourself in a situation where you can't say yes 
to someone and the emotional toll that that takes. I think those are things that people don't necessarily think of, you know, like how, how hard this work is physically, emotionally, um, how taxing it can be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even just for me, I'm, I'm not in sanctuary work. I'm just an animal advocate and I get monthly people asking me about placing roosters, about other animals. Um, you know, there's, we've just found this rooster. We don't know what to do. You know, that happens to me all the time. And, and what do I do? I refer them to sanctuaries, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that that's right. Sanctuaries are the ones that have to say no, if they just can't. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's just so many animals in need. Mm -hmm. So your work has focused mainly on chickens and it's May, which is international respect for chickens month. And you're going to be speaking actually at our upcoming humane hoax chicken webinar on May 21st. And we're very happy to have you as a guest speaker for the webinar. So why do you think it's important to focus on chickens? Why do you focus on chickens? There, there are so many, so many reasons. So for, for the sort of practical reasons is there are just, there are so many chickens in need of sanctuary because there are just so many chickens that are exploited and harmed. You know, they're one of the most uh, abused and mistreated animals. So there's this need that, you know, we need as a community, people who can care for them. And unlike some other species who might be more challenging to care for in certain settings, chickens, we've seen that chickens can be cared for in, you know, urban settings. You don't, it's, it's not this notion that like you have to save up, if you want to get involved, you have to save up your money and buy a property in the country in order to start a massive farmed animal sanctuary, right? Like you can get involved and start helping chickens in some cases, exactly where you are. Obviously yeah. there are zoning rules, yeah. but so there's just this, this real potential, I think, for people to step up and help chickens who are really in need of help. Yeah. So instead of relying on the sanctuary, you know, and sanctuaries are doing plenty, right? And they're, they can only do so much. So instead of everyone in the community just sort of looking to the large sanctuaries and being like, they'll, they'll take care of the problem, you know, how individual people can get involved in caring for certain animals and, and chickens are one that I think more folks are realizing they can get involved in providing micro sanctuary for, for chickens. And so getting information out there to help folks be able to do that is really important. And the other part is there's so much bad information out there about chickens. And so we don't want, you know, well-intentioned people to be, you know, like, oh, look, I can care for a chicken and I'm going to go gather information and figure out how to care for chickens. And here they are just faced with all this information that is very bad. Mm. But if you don't have experience with chickens, you might not realize that it's bad. It's the combination of the sheer need, the fact that you don't have to be this established sanctuary in order to help chickens and also trying to combat this harmful information that's out there because there's just so much information that is from backyard chicken keepers who, regardless of how they feel about the individuals who they care for, it's like their philosophical beliefs about chickens are, are often different than what ours are at the Open Sanctuary Project and what like most, you know, vegan activists, it's like in backyard chicken keeping settings, even if someone considers them like quote unquote pets, you know, if they got them because it's like, oh, well, we'll have eggs, fresh eggs or whatever. It's like, there's this commodification component, obviously. And then there's like a certain value that's placed on them that factors into different equations. So when you get those recommendations that are like chickens are easy to care for, or like chickens don't need protection from the cold, or they don't need vet care, like that's all coming from this place of like, they have a value 
that's been placed on them. And so it's decided that like they they don't need vet care because they're not worth it is usually the the feeling. Like if you think about how much it would cost to get a new chicken, like it's not worth the cost of bringing them to the vet. Um, It's not worth the cost of giving them a nice insulated place to live. And so then that obviously seeps into all the recommendations. So, so anyways, those are the, the, the practical reasons. So we are going to be getting more into that at the Humane Hooks Chicken webinar because uh, you're going to be speaking about all the misinformation and bad information out there. So mm-hmm. um, that's going to be really interesting. So if anyone wants to hear more about that, please definitely uh, register for the webinar and come and join us for that. And on the micro sanctuary note, I did an entire series on micro sanctuaries last year on this podcast. So if anybody wants to know more about, if you're considering starting a micro sanctuary, want to know more about micro sanctuaries, uh, I have a whole micro sanctuary series. And, And it is, it's so true that, you know, because they're so much smaller, the little bodies are smaller, they're able to be in many more spaces and many more places, and you don't necessarily have to have a lot of outdoor space for them. So it is easier to care for them in lots of different situations. Uh, so it's true, more people can jump in and help. I, I love that thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. For me, one of the reasons that I really started focusing on chickens is that you know they they seem to they seem to be put of course in this lower category than other farmed animals as far as people being able to relate to them or people feeling that they're that they have any kind of emotional capacity or or that terrible stereotype that they're stupid and and things like that right. uh and so i felt that and I think a lot of us feel that it's important to elevate their status as individuals, as sentient, emotional, amazing uh, beings that they are. So there is this terrible second epidemic of disease happening right now in the United States that many people have no idea that it's happening. And that is an avian flu epidemic that's happening on the East Coast. It's causing massive uh, killing, culling of millions of chickens, I think tens of millions of chickens possibly, and uh, where the industry is just killing these birds and you know disposing of them, not killing them for the meat and eggs, which they do anyway, but pre that they're killing them uh, because they are being um, diagnosed with this flu and it's detrimentally affecting farmed animal sanctuaries as well. They're really affected. It's spread to the wild bird population. This is, it's just horrible that this is happening. People have no idea. Can you explain what's happening? Yes, I, I will try to. It's a, it's a massive topic. So avian influenza, just for a little background, or, or bird flu, it's also called, that refers to any infection or disease that's caused by type A influenza viruses in birds. Wild aquatic birds, like migrating waterfowl, shorebirds, they're the natural host of these type A influenza viruses. And, and these viruses, while, while those birds are the natural host, I don't know if there's any bird that, that like can't get avian influenza. I think at the very least, most species can, and that includes other species of wild birds and domesticated birds, including chickens, turkeys, domesticated ducks and geese, ostriches, guinea fowl, etc., And so these viruses are then broken up into categories of highly pathogenic avian influenza viruses or HPAI and low pathogenic avian influenza viruses or LPAI. And there's a big difference between the two. So HPAI has a really high mortality rate in chickens and related species and causes like really serious illness. LPAI viruses 
have a low morbidity and mortality rate and in some cases cause asymptomatic infections. So you wouldn't even know that somebody had it or it might cause a more severe respiratory illness. It sort of depends on the strain and if there are other factors at play and you know the age of the bird. And so HPAI, because it has such a high mortality rate in chickens and related species, can really have a serious impact on the poultry industry. And so they want to, you know, the U.S. wants to be aware of sort of what the status is with these avian influenza viruses. And so the U.S. prides itself on having one of the best surveillance programs in the world. Part of it is they'll, they'll work with hunters who will then voluntarily have birds that they've killed who might be like, you know, a wild duck or a wild goose. They'll have them tested for avian influenza viruses so that the agencies responsible can keep track of what strains are circulating in these wild populations, where they are, and really just be aware of, of the situation. Hmm. There hadn't been a case of HPAI in the U.S. for, I think, a few years. I mean, the last big outbreak was in 2014 and 2015, and there have been like sporadic cases of high path avian influenza in domesticated birds since then, but not like the same scale as that 2014-2015 outbreak. So after not having any cases in the U.S. for a while, in January, there was the first confirmation in a wild bird in South Carolina. So that raised the alarm bells that, you know, there is highly pathogenic avian influenza circulating in the um, Atlantic flyway. Um, And so the East Coast was definitely on high alert. The first confirmed case in domesticated birds actually didn't happen on the East Coast. It was detected in Indiana Mm. at a turkey facility. So since being detected in um, Indiana, it's been spreading and detected in uh, numerous states. I mean, as of this morning, I think it was like 29 states had had cases in domesticated birds. And so the concern, yeah. So the concern is that first of all, this is a highly contagious and highly fatal disease. So it's not a disease that you want your residents to get. And there, there are certain diseases. You mean for like for, for farm sanctuaries, the residents for farm farm sanctuaries. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you know, and like, you know, commercial operations don't, don't want it for different reasons, but yeah. This is, it's a serious, serious disease. Yeah. And there are, there are certain diseases that, you know, if you're looking at information that's coming from, you know, the egg industry or, you know, the poultry industry, there are certain diseases that appear to be fairly common or common concern that don't really impact sanctuaries very much. And, you know, there's, there are reasons for that, you know, at sanctuaries, the birds are receiving individualized care. They're not constantly stressed because they're overcrowded and, you know, they're not locked inside with like poor air quality and all that. But unfortunately, avian influenza is not one of those diseases that's like, oh, this is an industry problem and not something that sanctuaries have to concern themselves with. And part of that is because there are various ways that it could, the virus could be brought to a sanctuary or introduced to a property. But one of those ways is through infected wild birds who spread the virus in their feces, in their respiratory secretions, sometimes in their feathers. And so, you know, at a sanctuary where birds often have time to be outside and enjoy the sun and scratching the dirt and all these things, these are things that actually can put them at risk because of the way that this virus is transmitted. And so because of that, sanctuaries are having to take pretty extreme measures to protect their residents, both from the virus itself, which is highly fatal, and also from the government's response to the outbreak, which is also highly fatal. So looking at just the virus itself, folks are either having to keep their bird residents locked inside to prevent any of that direct or indirect contact with wild birds, because again, these wild birds could look totally healthy and still be shedding 
shedding the virus. And with high path avian influenza, they're shedding high levels of the virus, just like really massive amounts of virus. So they're either keeping birds inside or they're having to create these enclosed outdoor pens that have a solid roof. Um, like, in, so like, that, a, like an aviary kind of thing. Yeah. But instead, you know, some folks will do like netting over the top, right. you know, for predator protection. But if you think of like, if you think about the way the virus is spread, that's not going to be enough. Because if you have oh. a wild bird perched on a branch above <sighs> wow. your residence, yeah. or even just flying by or feathers blow in, that could then contaminate the soil or it could get into their food sources. And again, this is a highly fatal and highly contagious disease. You do not want that virus to come near yeah. your residence. Wow. So they're having to take these extreme measures in terms of the way their residents are housed. And it's a terrible time of year to have to be doing this because it's like the weather's starting to warm up. And then in addition to those measures, they're also having to take serious biosecurity measures to make sure that, you know, sure the wild birds and their feces and their feathers are excluded from the space, but they have to make sure that they're not, you know, when, when the humans caring for the birds enter the space, that they're not tracking the virus in because they're maybe walking through an area that someone has pooped or the virus has been spread. Or even if you think about a sanctuary might get, you know, bagged chicken pellets delivered by the local feed store, you know, and if you think about where that vehicle has been, that vehicle has probably been to a farm Mm. that had, you know, that cares for chickens that might be driving through contaminated spaces and bring it onto your property. So it's like, there's a real concern about like how to keep this virus out And then on top of that, like as if all of that isn't enough, that you're dealing with this virus that could result in, you know, your residents dying from this disease. There's the added stress that because of the impact that this outbreak has on the poultry industry and because, you know, there's all this talk about like wanting to make sure that like trade isn't impacted and there aren't like uh, trade restrictions imposed or, you know, whatever. Um, the goal is to contain, you know, and control the outbreak as quickly as possible. And, and this might change in the future because I have seen talk about vaccines and whatnot. But the current way that the um, U.S. responds to outbreaks like this for high path, even influenza is to they call it stamping out. But it is it's killing any bird who is any domesticated bird that is confirmed to be infected or has been exposed. So that first confirmation that I mentioned in Indiana, I'm pretty sure that was a, an operation that had four giant warehouses. And I think two of those, the turkeys were showing signs of disease and the other two, they weren't. Everyone, everyone was killed. It doesn't matter in their eyes. Like everyone is killed because they could have been infected and they don't want the disease to spread. And then they set up a zone around the infected property um, where there might be rules like the birds can't, you can't move birds off site. There might be like mandated testing, which of course is terrifying. Like imagine being a sanctuary, you're already trying your best to keep this virus out and probably trying to avoid testing because one confirmation, everyone is killed. And so, so to find so, out that now you have to test, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, so, so, so the, what the local government can come in and test your animals. If you have, if you are a farm sanctuary, you can test your animals and then kill all your animals. If there's a positive, is that, that is, that is what, that is what the situation appears to be. It's a coordinated response between the federal government and then the state government. So it does vary state by state. But yeah, the policy is this stamping out again, which is code for killing everyone. Yeah. Um, so one positive case in a domesticated bird on a premises, they want to control the situation by killing everyone on the property, every domesticated bird on the property. Well, now I see why. So I see on social media, the farm sanctuaries are being so careful and so concerned about this. And yeah, I mean, not only are they concerned that the birds are going to get get this possible disease and, and suffer, but that all their people could be killed. Yeah, it's 
I mean, it's, it's horrifying. I feel like this has just been like a terrible, a terrible year. So, so stressful. Yeah. Um, And, and I want to ask as well. So this is at this epidemic level because of poultry farming, correct? I mean, because we have crammed these birds so close together, there's hundreds of thousands of birds on these farms. So these things spread easily, mutate easily. And if, if there wasn't this kind of intensive farming of birds, then, then it's, it's more likely that we wouldn't have these kinds of problems, correct? You know, one of the, one of the issues is, like I said, this, these are viruses that, you know, the natural host are these, you know, wild migrating waterfowl and shorebirds. And my understanding is what happens is, you know, these viruses, then when they end up, when a chicken or someone ends up getting infected, they start mutating. And so that's when they turn into these like really nasty, horrible things because the low path avian influenza viruses often don't cause much of a problem for their natural hosts. And even up until recently, it seemed like the high path viruses still weren't really affecting the wild populations. Like it sounds like sometimes there were some cases where certain species would have, there'd be some fatalities, but it just seems like what's going on this time around is so much more where more and more wildlife or wild birds are being affected by these viruses that have mutated. So there's been all sorts of reports out of Minnesota, which is one of the states that have, has been hit pretty hard of you know raptors coming into wildlife facilities really, really, really sick and having to be euthanized. So it's, it's like it, the scope goes beyond just the domesticated birds, but it's a mess that like we have created. Like this isn't, this doesn't just seem like a natural progression. Right. Like, you know, because yeah, like there shouldn't be all these birds crammed together and there shouldn't be, it's like another example of like, we're just taking over everyone's habitat and putting species in contact with each other that like shouldn't yeah. have contact with each other. Yeah. And unnatural conditions and overcrowding and being, you know, on top of one another and uh, stressed out and sad and all those things are going to make you more susceptible for, to disease. And so, you know, these, these domesticated animals are getting these diseases that in wild populations are not as detrimental. And so they make it worse and then they mutate and yeah, it's, it's horrible. I just feel like all around, it's just a really sad situation for birds, like just birds generally. Like, obviously, my focus is, you know, farmed animal sanctuaries and how we can protect the bird residents at these places. But it's like the impacts of this are just really huge when you look at the die off that has been going on in wild populations, too. It's like, it's, I just feel like it's one of those examples where I just want, I don't know who to shake, but I want to shake someone because <laughs> it's like, oh no, like trade restrictions and like, oh no, the poultry industry. And it's like, like, look at these individuals that are dying. Yeah. Like, look at what, like another example of what we're doing to the environment. Like think of the impact on like the ecosystem that you have these like mass die-offs of birds because of, you know, a problem that is directly related to how we interact with non-human animals. Yeah. And I, I actually saw uh, it made the national news that bald eagles were now testing positive for the avian flu. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was interesting because they, they didn't say anything about really anything about the poultry industry or anything about anything other than there's this avian flu. And now the bald eagles are getting the avian flu. And it just it, it it was such speciesism because here we're caring about this one species that has a symbolic meaning to our country and is kind of the only bird people kind of know or whatever, you know, <laughs> but so many domestic, like you said, turkeys and chickens and all these millions have been killed yeah, over this, just killed outright. And nobody cares about them you know, about those individuals. 
it's, oh, it's frustrating. Yeah. It really is. It's yeah. so frustrating. And I feel like it's another one of those examples where it's just so hard, I think, for people to even like wrap their heads around it. Cause you, the, the um, United States Department of Agriculture like posts the numbers about like what's going on and where the confirmed cases are. And you look at just like one facility that's affected and it'll be over a million birds. Wow. That, you know, they just post the number, but you know that that means like all those birds are dead. Yeah. Well, we're going to be talking more about this at the Humane Hoax Chicken webinar. Actually, uh, Rebecca Moore is going to be giving a presentation on this particular subject. So, uh, so we'll learn a lot more uh, on May 21st at the chicken webinar. So, great. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, switching directions a little bit, you have a new resource coming out with the Open Sanctuary Project, a rooster resource that you're going to be launching soon. Tell us about the rooster resource. Yeah, um, so this is a project that's actually a few years in the making, and it's finally happening because of my amazing colleague, Julia Mangus. You know, we thought it would be really great to release this resource in honor of this year's International Respect for Chickens Day as a way to really bring the focus to roosters who, you know, we already talked about the fact that chickens are one of the most mistreated land animals, but like within the category of chickens, like roosters are just so misunderstood and so mistreated. Yeah. you know, there's this really pervasive issue of, of rooster stigma. And so we wanted to address that. So this resource um, is focused on like, well, what do we mean by rooster stigma? Where does that come from? How does it affect not just the roosters, but the, you know, the people who are dedicated to rooster rescue? And most importantly, like, what can we start doing about it? And so in addition to, you know, advocating for roosters and educating folks about who roosters really are and how they behave and how they live, we wanted to also get folks to consider the way that they think and talk about roosters themselves. And so this is something that, you know, I'll admit I've definitely been guilty of in the past, there's this tendency to describe roosters who exhibit certain behaviors as mean or aggressive. When if you look at their behavior and the situation, like that's not really what's going on. Think about the difference between saying, you know, I'll use cantaloupe as an example, like saying cantaloupe is aggressive versus saying he is being protective or that he is acting in self-defense because he feels threatened by me standing over him and being, you know, five feet taller than he is. So, so just like reframing that so that when we, you know, as a community are talking about roosters, that we aren't accidentally reinforcing people ideas of roosters, because it's not uncommon for folks to have this idea that they have a reason to be scared of roosters, that roosters are mean, that roosters are going to attack them. And those are big reasons why they end up being, you know, of course, it's not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons why sometimes sanctuaries are contacted about placing a rooster because like the rooster's mean to me or the the rooster is aggressive to humans. The rooster, you know, kicks me whenever I go in there. And so just getting more information out there about who they are and how they behave and why they behave the way that they do, reminding folks that they're they're prey animals, you know, like a lot of what they do is self-defense and trying Mm -hmm. to protect themselves and protect the people that they love. So, yeah. so yeah, we, we talk about other things in the resource, but the gist is to really uh, address these misconceptions about roosters so that we're, again, like uh, not labeling them as somehow being bad, but, but explaining who they are and what they're doing and why they might be doing it, I think, I think is important. And I, I do want to mention that on this resource, we were lucky and very grateful to work with some really amazing chicken 
chicken rescuers and specifically rooster rescuers. So we worked with the folks at Chicken Run Rescue, Triangle Chicken Advocates, Farm Bird Sanctuary, and Rooster House. And we're hoping that this is going to be the first in, in a series about roosters. I like to to say that roosters are courageous. I think that's a great mm-hmm. word to kind of correct that you talk about kind of corrective language around mm-hmm. describing them. I think that they're they're brave, they're courageous. I mean to to be protective like that even though they are so small and they are vulnerable. And they're a prey animal. I know. Mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes people forget so not only are they protective of the people that they care for, but like they do so despite the fact that they're so vulnerable themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yes. Yeah, so I mean, they're, they're completely courageous and it's really frustrating because I, that's something that, you know, is totally exploited by some people, you know, like some backyard chicken keepers will encourage people to have a rooster as sort of like they're, instead of having proper predator proofing, you have a rooster who will defend the flock. But then if he defends the flock against that human, you know, now all of a sudden he's a huge problem Mm, and, you know, and that's not going to end well for him once like the human decides he's a problem. Roosters are just, I feel like they need all the support and people advocating for them as they can get because, you know, they're misunderstood. Yeah. They're so misunderstood. And there's so many, there's so many roosters in need sometimes because, you know, of specific individual issues with like a human having certain ideas, roosters, but also sometimes because of, you know, societal things that like, for some reason, crowing is such a problem over dog barking that, you know, roosters are banned from so many areas, you know, just because they crow. Yeah. Yeah. Which is ridiculous to me. I mean, I live in the suburbs and all the noise of the machinery, like people's leaf blowers and lawnmowers. I mean, that stuff is really- Yeah, those leaf blowers alone. Give me roosters crowing any day. Yeah, exactly. A rooster crowing is such a a cheerful, wonderful sound comparatively, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Poor roosters. I know. <laughs> well, so yeah. tell me just just briefly, this resource is what? So it's online. It's just kind of information that you can go to on the Open Sanctuary Project's website or how do people find it? Yeah, so um, we will post it on our social media pages for sure. And we also have a newsletter that folks can sign up for so that they can see when we have new resources out. And then other than that, yeah, it'll be on our website once it's up and folks can search, you know, for rooster stigma and I'm sure it will come up or they can just go to our chicken care section and it will come up. Great. Wonderful. I hope people check that out and share it. Uh, It's really information that needs to be out there spread widely. Yeah. Great. Well, Tara, it's been wonderful talking to you. I uh, do need to wrap up though. So I want to ask you, what gives you hope for the future? Um, you know, I tend to be a bit of a pessimist at the heart naturally. <laughs> so this was, a, <laughs> this was a good one to sort of think about like, oh, you know, it is important to think about like, who are the things that give me hope? And I think, you know, one thing that came to mind is since I joined the Open Sanctuary Project, I've had the opportunity to work with and meet different caregivers from different organizations who have just been so excited and willing to help and just share what they know and help get information out there with no end goal of somehow you know, we give folks credit, but it's like, that's not the point. Like the point isn't somehow elevating themselves or something as being some sort of expert. It's really just to like get as much good information out there as possible because it's what's best for the animals. And so every time I meet another person and collaborate with another person who is like that and just wants to contribute for the greater good, um, that's something that definitely gives me hope for the future because we all can do better when we know more and when we share information with each other and learn from each other's mistakes and learn from each other's successes, you know? So, so those are, that's something that 
that gives me hope. Wonderful. And that there's so many now, so many people out there doing this kind of work and doing this uh, chicken care and uh, and the broader sanctuary work. It's uh, it's it's beautiful to see the expansion, you know, because I've seen over the last 30 years, I remember when there was just farm sanctuary and that was it. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, that, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's incredible. Now there's, there's so many. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on, Tara, and you will be joining us at the Humane Hoax Chicken Webinar coming up on May 21st, Uh, so I hope folks sign up for that. Thank you so much for joining us for that and for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you again so much for having me. It really was an honor to be on here. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. Thank you all for sticking with the chickens, sticking up for chickens, and listening to, I hope, listening to both episodes this month dedicated to chickens for International Respect for Chickens Month. You are a rare bird, a rare and wonderful person who wants to learn about and protect and safeguard and defend the most vulnerable and exploited among us, the chickens. Thank you for your care and compassion. If you're still eating the flesh or eggs of chickens, I hope this month and these episodes were an inspiration for you to stop supporting the chicken flesh and egg industry and to embrace veganism. If you found this episode useful, uh, please share it with your chicken-loving community or or pre-lovers of chickens. All sometimes folks need is to know them, to hear from others that know them, and then they too become chicken lovers. I hope to see you at the Humane Hoax Chicken Webinar on May 21st. Please register and join us, and please protect chickens, respect chickens, and live vegan. Thank you.